Hello, everyone, and welcome to the April 18th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal approved a $50,000 cost penalty imposed on an injured worker for rejecting a settlement offer. Here's what happened in the Court of Appeal unpublished case of Derek Millsaps versus Doman Company. Millsaps, an employee of Pet Boys, suffered industrial injuries caused by a malfunctioning piece of equipment. Millsaps sued Dorman Company for negligent installation of the equipment that caused his injury. Pet Boys, a self-insured employer, filed a complaint and intervention in this case to recover the amount they paid in workers' compensation benefits. Dorman made a pretrial offer to the injured worker pursuant to Code of Civil Procedure Section 998. Section 998 says that if an offer is made in a civil case by a defendant and is not accepted and the plaintiff fails to obtain a more favorable judgment, the court may require the plaintiff to pay a reasonable sum to cover costs of the services of expert witnesses in addition to defendant's costs from the time of the offer. The purpose of Section 998 is to encourage pretrial settlements and avoid needless litigation. The Section 998 offer in this case was for $50,000 in exchange for the worker's dismissal of the action against Dorman and his agreement to indemnify and hold the Dorman company harmless from any and all claims or liens asserted by his employer, Pet Boys. Millsaps rejected the CCP 998 offer and proceeded to trial and lost his case. Dorman was then awarded nearly $50,000 because of Millsop's failure to accept the 998 offer. On appeal, the worker argued that Dorman's Section 99 offer was defective because it was conditioned upon compromising the claims of the employer and thus was an offer made to two parties. The trial court rejected the employee's argument that the Section 998 offer was invalid and the injured worker appealed. The Court of Appeal, in the unpublished opinion of Derek Millsaps versus a Dorman Company, affirmed the award of Section 998 costs. Several courts have said that a Section 998 offer made to multiple parties is valid only if it is expressly apportioned among them and not conditioned upon acceptance by all of them. Nothing about the offer required Pet Boys in this case to cooperate or agree to the settlement or to reduce its claim. Even had Millsaps settled by the underlying personal injury claim against Dorman, Pet Boys' complaint and intervention could have proceeded to trial. The trial court was correct in rejecting the worker's argument. A new case from the U.S. Tax Court rules that workers' comp benefits are taxable. Here's what happened in the U.S. tax court case of Kevin and Linda Shirar versus Commissioner of Internal Revenue. In 1998, Mrs. Shirar, a California resident, suffered two work-related injuries. Mrs. Shirar began receiving workers' compensation benefits in 1999. She had a total of 12 surgeries to treat her injuries. Along the way, Mrs. Shirar applied for and was awarded Social Security Disability Benefits. In 2007, Mrs. Shirar received a Social Security Benefit Statement, which reported over $36,000 in benefits, 
which included a workers' compensation offset of over $30,000. The Shirars filed a 2007 federal income tax return but did not report any of the Social Security benefits. The IRS determined that 85% or $30,000 of the Social Security benefits received by Mrs. Shirar in 2007 was includable in gross income for that year. The tax on this benefit she had to pay was nearly $5,000. The tax court denied her appeal of this tax. The tax court noted that workers' compensation is generally excludable from a taxpayer's gross income. In contrast, Social Security benefits may be includable in a taxpayer's gross income pursuant to a statutory formula. And the amount of Social Security taxable benefits may include the amount of workers' compensation benefits received as an offset. Specifically, if the amount of Social Security benefits that a taxpayer receives is reduced because of the receipt of workers' compensation benefits, then the amount of workers' compensation benefits that causes the reduction is treated for tax purposes as though it were a Social Security benefit. The purpose of this tax law is to equalize the federal tax treatment of Social Security benefits for all taxpayers, including those who are and are not eligible to receive workers' comp. The tax court decision acknowledged that if Mrs. Sherrard had not applied for Social Security benefits, then her workers' compensation benefits would not have been subject to federal income tax. The court further stated that they appreciated why the Shirars were upset. Nevertheless, the Supreme Court has ruled that the tax court is duty-bound to apply the law as written by Congress to the facts as they occurred and not as they might have occurred. A new WCAB panel decision has ruled that the Eames scanning backlog is no excuse for incomplete litigation records. In the case of Jose Hernandez versus AMS Staff Leasing, the injured worker sought to depose the CNA Risk Insurance Company claims adjuster and to review portions of the claim file. The problem in this case is that most of the paperwork was missing from the Eames and the WCAB paper file. The employer filed a motion to quash this deposition, but this motion was missing from the Eames record. Applicant said he filed an opposition to the employer's motion and filed his own motion to compel the deposition, but there was no paper or electronic record of applicant's paperwork either. The minutes of hearing on these motions were in Eames, but were poorly written and gave little information about what happened at the hearing on the motion. The employer filed a petition for removal of the case after this hearing and each party gave widely differing accounts of what happened at the trial. The employer claimed exhibits were offered by both parties and applicant claimed the matter was submitted on the pleadings. There was no record of stipulations and issues submitted for decision or of documents offered and received into evidence. The actual court order in controversy was in Eames under the misnomer order allowing deposition attorney fees. The order required the adjuster, Terry Caldwell, to appear for a deposition and to produce documents identified in an Appendix A. However, the WCAB was unable to find any electronic or paper record 
of an Appendix A to see what it said. The Eames record said that the deposition of Terry Caldwell actually took place, as ordered, in September, and the deposition transcript was received at the district office in October. But the transcript was not entered into Eames until February 2011, nearly four months later. The electronic record also shows that a settlement was presented to a different work comp judge on a walkthrough basis and an order approving the settlement issued in January 2011. These settlement documents were not entered into Eames until March 2011. Thus, the appeals board was not notified of the January settlement and received no request to withdraw defendant's petition for removal despite the fact that the case was now settled. The WCAB pointed out that it is the responsibility of the parties and the work comp judge to ensure that the record is complete when a case is submitted for decision on the record. At a minimum, the record must contain, in properly organized form, the issues submitted for decision, the admissions and stipulations of the parties, and what was admitted into evidence. Furthermore, the Labor Code, the WCAB rules, and Workers' Compensation Appeals Board Policy and Procedures Manual specifies what must be contained in the record and minutes of hearing. The minutes of hearing in this case did not meet the standards of these regulations. The WCAB was a little upset that they had to review the file in this shape, and they concluded that although there are very real problems causing system-wide backlogs, these problems do not excuse the judge or the litigants from ensuring that a complete and properly organized record is available to the appeals board for review. Another new panel decision said that the failure of a QME to issue a supplemental report on time justifies an order for a new QME panel. Here's what happened in the panel decision of Gwen Lloyd versus County of Alameda. This was a denied injury case. The original panel QME stated that it was not medically probable that applicant's workplace caused or aggravated her rheumatoid arthritis. An original psychiatric panel QME also found no industrial injury to the psyche because applicant was terminated in part to a good faith personnel action. The employer recognized that if it lost the issue of good faith personnel action, the report from the psychiatrist would not constitute substantial evidence as the QME did not review the entire medical record. Thus, the employer sent the psychiatric QME additional records with a request for a supplemental report. There was no response to this request within 60 days as required by the QME rules. No extension from the medical bureau was asked for by the doctor and no agreement was reached between the parties to extend the time for the supplemental report. Applicant therefore requested a new panel and argued that the remedy for QME lateness is a new panel. The work comp judge agreed and issued an order allowing a new QME panel. The QME regulation uses mandatory language that says that the time frame for supplemental reports shall be no more than 60 days from the date of the request. The employer objected to this order for a new panel, claiming that this regulation does not specify any remedy for time limit violations. The WCAB disagreed with the employer. 
The timeframes and the regulations are confusing since Section 38A talks about the 30-day timeframe for service of the initial or follow-up comprehensive medical legal evaluation reports and Subsection H talks about the 60-day timeframe for service of a supplemental report. In either case, 30 or 60 days, the delay in service of the report here had reached the 86th day by the date of hearing and the 96th day by the time the petition for removal was filed. The report was overdue by either subsection. Two major public policy considerations have to be balanced when trying to interpret these rules. The first public policy goal is to prevent doctor shopping and the second public policy goal is to speed up the process to, to deliver benefits promptly to injured workers. There was no explanation in the record for the doctor's failure to issue the supplemental report in a timely manner, nor were there any facts to indicate when that report might be available. In a situation where there are no facts to justify the delay, there can be no equitable considerations. In this instance, the public policy requiring a quick resolution of the issues favors the conclusion that a new panel should issue. The WCAB issued an order denying the employer's petition for removal. And now our fraud report. The California Department of Insurance filed a complaint to intervene in a key Tom or whistleblower lawsuit for false billing of anesthesia services by Sutter Hospitals. Sutter is one of the largest hospital chains in California and a dominant player in the Northern California healthcare market. In the complaint and intervention, the insurance commissioner alleges that Sutter Hospitals submitted false bills for anesthesia services provided during operating room procedures. Specifically, the suit claims that Sutter Hospitals used an anesthesia billing code to charge for services and supplies that patients and their insurers had already paid for, either through other charges on the hospital bill or through the anesthesiologist bill, which is billed separately from the hospital's bill. In some instances, no anesthesiologist was present in the operating room and no general anesthesia was even provided. These allegedly false bills are often extremely large and far in excess of the proper costs of the anesthesia services. The civil case was initially filed by Rockville Recovery Associates, who was hired by a private health care insurer to identify fraudulent bills. Recent press reports have focused on Sutter's role in driving up health care costs in Northern California. The Los Angeles Times reported that hospitals in Northern California's six most populous counties collected 56% more revenue per patient per day than in Southern California's six most populous counties. The LA Times article cited Sutter Hospitals as the driving force of those higher costs. Sutter is the dominant hospital system and the price leader in Northern California accounting for over a third of the hospital revenue generated in the region. Healthcare fraud has been identified as one of America's top crime problems. And Peter Budetti, Director of Program Integrity at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, has been working to develop new technological tools and a comprehensive long-term strategy to rein in fraud since his appointment last year. 
He has promised new measures to curb waste and fraud in Medicare and Medicaid that will soon pay big dividends. There are no official estimates for how much medical fraud costs, but the National Healthcare Anti-Fraud Associates cites information from the FBI that anywhere between $70 billion and $234 billion is lost annually. Bedetti is focusing as much on prevention as he is on detection and is confident about clamping down on scammers. He said that new computer programs and sophisticated data detective work are beefing up the arsenal of weapons to fight fraud. Several little-notice provision of Obama's health care reform law will step up enforcement action against fraudsters. They include risk-based screening of the people behind roughly 19,000 new requests to become health care providers under the Medicare system every month. Bedetti says that applicants who fall into high-risk categories will be subject to fingerprinting and criminal background checks through the FBI. Another new provision will allow U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius to clamp a temporary moratorium on new enrollments of providers and suppliers to government-run health care programs whenever such a move is deemed necessary to fight fraud. More importantly, Budetti said that the Medicare and Medicaid computer payment systems are being made far less vulnerable to fraud thanks to new and smarter software programs and algorithms. And payment to the hundreds of thousands of providers and suppliers already in the system can now be suspended in cases involving credible allegations of fraud. Bedetti's team will be intervening in the claims payment process in a very new set of ways that hasn't happened before. They will be taking advantage of modern technology and sophisticated analytic systems. The National Insurance Crime Bureau is a not-for-profit organization that receives support from over 1,000 property casualty insurance companies. The Bureau partners with insurers and law enforcement agencies to facilitate the identification, detection, and prosecution of insurance criminals. The NICB released its Questionable Claims Referral Reason Analysis for California this week. Questionable claims are those claims that NICB member insurance companies refer to the Bureau for closer review and investigation based upon one or more indicators of possible fraud. The report examines recent questionable claims originating in California and referred to the NICB. This report shows that there has been a 9% increase in California questionable claims from 2008 to 2010. Within California, the top five cities posting the most questionable claims were Los Angeles with over 5,000 reported and San Francisco was second with nearly 2,000 claims reported, followed by San Diego, Sacramento, and San Jose. The most frequently reported referral reasons were for questionable vehicle theft followed by faked or exaggerated injury. And in financial news, experts claim that the California system of workers' compensation is again nearing a crisis point. Litigation, lien filings, legal rulings, and pharmaceutical dispensing practices have eroded cost savings from 2003 and 2004 reforms, pushing workers' comp medical expenses above pre-reform levels. 
The WCIRB claims that rates are inadequate by 40% as a sign that the state's workers' compensation system once again is headed towards rough times. The average cost of California indemnity claims rose 60% between 2005 and 2009. The Sacramento-based Association of California Insurance Companies claims the comp market is facing very challenging times. And the Oakland-based California Workers' Compensation Institute confirms that the savings from these reforms have now eroded. The reforms are now seven years old and it is difficult for insurers to figure out how to make a profit. The losses amid a competitive insurance market also are weighing on self-insured employers. Historically, such scenarios in California preceded rapidly increasing coverage prices. But, according to Mark Webb, Vice President and Assistant General Counsel for Pacific Compensation Insurance Company, says California is not on the verge of a crisis. Webb says that today's market conditions are substantially different than they were in the past. Better research on system cost drivers is available today than a decade ago, and capital provided by insurers regularly flows in and out of California now, rather than just having a few underwriters. Only time will tell if there is a crisis ahead in California workers' compensation. And in medical news, the University of Maryland and the National Council on Compensation Insurance collaborated on a study to test the impact of safe lifting programs on workers' compensation costs. Researchers talked to directors of nursing in 200 different facilities that had been using mechanical lifting devices for a minimum of three years. Long-term care workers have the highest injury rates within the healthcare industry. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that in 2009, long-term care facilities had an injury rate of 8.4 per 100 full-time equivalent workers. The researchers found that long-term care facilities with specific safe lifting procedures and policies in place performed the best. The results showed that close to 95% of these facilities had uh, powered mechanical lifts and 80% used them regularly. The investigators concluded that an emphasis on safe lifting programs did appear to lower workers' compensation costs and decrease the incidence of workplace injuries. And in regulatory news, the WCIRB announced an expansion of the information and services it makes available online to agents, brokers, policyholders, and the general public. This action was taken in response to various requests from the California Department of Insurance, the California Legislature, and employers. Agendas, minutes and schedules for the regular meeting of the Governing Committee, the Classification and Rating Committee, and the Actuarial Committee are now available online. These meetings remain open to the public. Beginning in May, licensed agents and brokers will have online access to more information such as WCIRB bulletins and general notices, WCIRB committee agendas and minutes, California Workers' Compensation Uniform Statistical Reporting Plan 1995, the California Workers' Compensation Experience Rating Plan 1995, experience modifications with search capability, and XMOD direct automated alerts will be available free of charge. 
and early next year, access to coverage information will be made available via the Internet. That's all our news and events for, these, uh, for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone or your iPad or your iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please come back and see us again next week for more news.